Last time we were together, we saw Jesus rebuking his disciples for their lack of faith and encouraging them to even have the faith of a mustard seed, the smallest agricultural plant. And you will, and if so, nothing will be impossible to you. Even if you find yourself up against, you know, a demonic entity as they had, God was going to take care of the situation if we were to have faith in him. But in the context of that, I, I, and before we dive into our text this morning, I'd like to address the invisible elephant in the room. Invisible elephant? Well, here's what I mean. Um, I say that because we concluded in verse 20 last week. And today we pick up at verse 22. What's missing? Where to go? Why is this? Is it because the ESV is a corrupt translation taking verses out of the Bible? Hardly, hardly. And let me just take a few minutes to explain this invisible elephant, this disappearing, reappearing verse. If you have another translation, such as the New King James Version or a King James Version, you'll find this verse in there. And it says, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Speaking of the demon that had possessed this young man in the prior, uh, prior paragraph that, w- that it was in line with. And uh, in this New King James Version, there's a footnote on it that says that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have that verse. And similarly, other translations like the NASB has it in brackets with a similar footnote. And then you have the ESV and the NIV that just took it out altogether. Now again, the important question is why did they go ahead to do that? All of these, whether it be through a very carefully worded footnote, brackets, or taking it out altogether, they're all indicating that this verse was at some point inserted into late copies of the Gospel of Matthew and were just copied over and over again from there. But the ones before a certain point in history do not contain verse 21, indicating it wasn't originally a part of Matthew's Gospel. You know, people make the mistake of thinking that the Bible works like a game of telephone. You guys might have played that old game growing up where I might give Ruthie uh, a message and then she'll pass it to Sharon and she'll pass it to Madhu and then it'll work its way to the, towards the back of the room. And by the time it gets to Sherry all the way in the back, if it was anything like the game was played back when I was in school, she'd be embarrassed to tell me what she heard. That's usually how it works. By the time it gets to the end, it gets corrupted, and it often sounds nothing like the message. And people say, oh, that's how the Bible works. You can't trust what it says. It's been translated so many times. Not true. Anyone who says that has no idea of how the Bible came together. It's more like an open game of telephone, where the people in the back, well, we still have earlier copies of the manuscripts. In this game, it would be like if you guys could... Go right back to Ruthie and ask her what what she heard. The game gets a lot easier because you can always compare notes with the earlier versions, making it a much easier way to, to preserve the message. And funny enough, once you get good enough at the game, you know, you can usually figure out one of you guys in the middle are the troublemakers. 
You see, the Bible is also what we call tenacious. It is tenacious that once something is in the manuscripts or the early copies of the scripture, it stays there, whether or not it was originally there or not. Uh, the, the scribes who would faithfully copy would just whatever is there. So the people who copied ancient documents that our Bible consists of did not view it as their duty to interpret what should be in or out. They just simply copied word for word, footnote for footnote, what is there. So if you're copying scripture and you're coming to an interesting passage, like say Matthew 17, verse 21, or 20, I suppose, would be the better example, and you're like, oh, hey, this sounds like another verse. Let me write a little note here in the margins uh, reminding me of this other verse, guess what? That little marginal note is now going to get copied ad nauseum for the rest of eternity throughout all these other uh, copies that were made afterwards, which is likely what happened here as this phrase, you know, this one only comes out through prayer and fasting, uh, is recorded in Mark chapter 9, record, recording the same incident. So, Likely, this is just a footnote that got inserted by a scribe at some point and just got copied over and over again from there. And, and, this, and so this phrase, while it's not original to Matthew, it, it was spoken by Jesus. And it is important. It's emphasizing the importance of prayer in, in difficult times, in times of trial, like the ones we had covered last week. You know, saying that prayer is what makes the difference. Because prayer, after all, is the process of transferring my problems, my issues, and handing them, transferring ownership from me to God. That's what happens when you pray. You take my problems, and I'm handing them up to God. It's not my problem anymore. God, I'm placing this in your hands. That, there's a spiritual transfer that takes place when we pray. And I wonder if that's why we have so many problems this day. Because we don't humble ourselves enough to recognize our need for God. We think, oh, I got it. I got this myself. I don't need to bother handing this up to God. I'll hold on to this one. Because we're so proud we think we got this. Rather than humbly admitting, I need God in every area of my life. So I'm going to pray for everything. And just hand everything up to God and let Him take care of it. I still act like it depends on me. Often I find myself trusting that maybe I'm the vehicle God's going to use to answer some of my prayers. He's not just going to unilaterally take care of all of my problems, but he will guide the process. It's very important that we remember to pray. But getting back to this invisible elephant, uh, contrary to what liberal scholars proliferate in their poorly researched documentaries. There are no missing verses of the Bible. There are no missing books of the Bible. And everything that's supposed to be there is in there. And in fact, we even have a small extra handful of extra verses sprinkled in from time to time, but none that change the meaning of the text or none that uh, we'd be less off if we, if we didn't have them. Think of the Bible as like one of those puzzles that you used to have, those box-top puzzles. Say you had a hundred-piece puzzle. And the Bible's like that because everything just fits together and tells a beautiful, consistent story, especially once you have all the pieces where they're supposed to be. 
But imagine if you have 101 pieces. Is that a problem? Is your, is your puzzle that you're working on somehow corrupt? No, that's not a problem at all, actually. You just find yourself with an extra piece at the end. You then figure out, oh, well, this is, must be where it came from. You set it aside, and you go on about your day. You don't think twice about it. And, and that, that's kind of what we have here. The Bible's got like 101 pieces. Oh, there's, this one doesn't belong. Okay, we put that off to the side. No big deal. We put a footnote on it, and we go about our day. It's only a problem if you have 99 pieces to a 100-piece puzzle. That's a problem. Hmm. Which is why those pseudo-scholars I mentioned before want you, you to keep talking about the missing parts of the Bible and missing books and missing this and missing that, but there's nothing missing. I can assure you of that. If you, when you actually read, take the time to read some of these extra Gospels that these documentaries talk about, when you read them for yourself, it's like, oh, I see why this doesn't belong in the Bible. You ever read, uh, what is it, the Gospel of, you know, I think it's the Gospel of Peter where there's a giant talking cross in it, a, a cross going up to the sky that actually talks. As you're reading this, it's like, okay, I see why this didn't end up in the Bible. <laughs> this clearly, <laughs> this didn't happen. So anyway, this is a fascinating topic to research, and I could literally go on for hours about this, but I will have mercy on you. In the interest of our time, let me just simply summarize by saying that, look, if a solid team of Bible scholars who love the Word of God saw the need to take this verse out of the Scripture... That's good. That should be good enough for most of us. And when you go ahead and nerd out on it like I am, you find all the more reason to trust the Bible that you guys have in your hands right now. It, it is exactly as what God wanted us to have today. But let's dive into our actual text this morning and stop messing around. In verse 22, that says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. A theme I told you guys would emerge is here before us as the shadow looms heavy over this section of Matthew's gospel. This is the third time in 30 verses that Jesus' death has been mentioned. Jesus is prepping his disciples for the inevitable, inevitable, but they seem unable to hear the words, he will be raised. They seem caught up and simply, they can't get past how it says he will be killed. Which is a reminder to us that without Resurrection Sunday, we'd only have Bad Friday. There would be no Good Friday without Resurrection Sunday. Because the resurrection changes everything. It proved, it provided the proof that Jesus' offering for sin in our place was accepted. It, it, that he then rose declaring victory over sin, death, the devil, and the grave. And by the way, just an interesting tidbit, that's why Christians meet on Sunday to worship. Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. You know, technically we celebrate Easter every single week. That's why we gather, and frankly, that's why we call it the Lord's Day. Because this is the day he rose again. He claimed that whole day. Now, sometime later, in verse 24, it says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, 
Does your teacher not pay the tax? And by the way, the, the two drachma tax is exactly what it sounds like. It was, that was the coin used to pay the tax, and you had to pay two of them. Real complex. But by this time, the, this particular coin, the drachma, was actually no longer in circulation. So what they would do is they would pay a shekel, which was worth two drachmas, kind of like if we discontinued the nickel and we had a tax for a dime. And, oh, the tax was, you know, a nickel tax, and you know, all you had was a was a dime. That's you know what what would happen. You would pay for two people with with one coin, essentially, which is what would happen here. Uh, which makes sense a little bit further on in our text how it how it resolves at the end. But this was the temple tax. It was paid annually by the Jews to support the temple. It actually has its origins going all the way back to Exodus chapter 30, where the people would contribute towards the tabernacle and the associated costs. Which is actually not a bad idea. Everybody chips in together and they mutually fund the ministry of the temple. It's a great idea. In fact, that's exactly how churches work today. We all chip in together except not out of an obligatory tax. We do so freely from our hearts. We give because we want to see God's word spread through this place. We want to keep the lights on to keep the quality of our worship going. We contribute so that we could give to those who are less fortunate in our area to continue the work of the ministry through our outreaches and the work of the deacons, the work of the missions committee, work of the food pantry, all of you guys. It's all funded through us working together. It's kind of a cool idea. The question is, would Jesus pay this particular tax? And the question's actually legitimate because Jesus was technically a rabbi. Rabbis didn't pay taxes, or at least this particular temple tax. And neither did those who lived by charity at that time because they didn't pay taxes either. But yet, if Jesus said no, it'll just be one more thing that his detractors would bring up against him. Oh, you don't pay your taxes? So, perhaps, Peter, perhaps knowing Jesus' answer from prior years, says in verse 25, he said, yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? By the way, before we get into the the breakdown of this, don't you guys wish Jesus gave a different answer here? (laughs) Don't you wish he, he came in and just said, absolutely not, Peter, we don't pay our taxes. Man, when April 15th comes around, I can just declare my intentions to be Christ-like. Oh, that would have been nice. Alas... Alas. So Jesus, whether he heard Peter supernaturally or naturally, it doesn't say, but he, he asked him a great question regarding this, by, regarding you know, who pays, who do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? Because, and, that, and that's interesting because no king would take toll or tax from their own sons. I mean, kings don't need the money. They have all the money. And the only people he'd be taking from are his sons, which he's largely supporting anyway. 
So Peter answers the obvious question in verse 26. And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Jesus is saying that the, re- the main reason he could object to this tax, in addition to all the prior reasons we mentioned, is that no king would ever take tax on their own son. Who's the temple for? God. Who's Jesus? The son of God. <laughs> Does it make sense him paying towards the building and the ministry that support that's all about honoring him? It doesn't make sense on its face for him to be paying this tax. If there was ever a tax Jesus didn't have to pay, it was the temple tax that was supporting him. He was the greater than the temple. <laughs> so so if it, it would make total sense for him. He could totally justify this form of tax evasion. But despite this perhaps being Slightly unfair, or at least miscalculated, Jesus replies in verse 27, However, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Again, you see you know, him paying the two people with one tax. This all ties in together. But Jesus had no technical requirement to be pinned to this tax. But he paid it anyway. Much like Jesus' baptism, that was also technically unnecessary. Jesus accepted John's baptism for repentance. Did Jesus need to repent of anything? Of course not. The sinless Son of God didn't need to repent. But he did so anyway to fulfill all righteousness, the Bible tells us. And here he reacts to not give an offense. And I just marvel at the wisdom Jesus displays in this passage. You know, many people deal with this issue of contending with others in terms of absolutes, needlessly, feeling they either need to fight with everyone, literally everyone, or fight with no one and just be a pacifist. But Jesus seems to reject both of those here. Both of these extremes, knowing that there is a time to fight hard, as he does against the religious leaders at the right time, and yet identifies when, so precisely when an issue is needlessly contentious and just goes ahead and pays the extra fine or, what, or pay, pays the tax, the tax to avoid unnecessary offense. God's people have a lot to learn from this text. It's done so rarely the right way in today's time. There's a lot that we can learn from if we really meditate on when it's worth it. But as we consider that, there is a hard limit to this don't offend encouragement. Very hard limit. And that is where we have to make a choice whether we're going to obey God or obey man. Huge difference there. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were warned not to proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. Dare I say it was offending the religious leaders at the time. It was an offense to them that they're walking around proclaiming the name of Jesus when they had rejected him. And what was their response? 
It says right in chapter 4, whether it is right to, in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. One chapter later, they're arrested for the same offense. And Peter says again boldly, we must obey God rather than man. So when we're faced with this choice to either, ah, let's get along with everybody, but in a way that compromises our faith, a way that compromises on our convictions, the choice is made for us. And we see this pattern time after time in Scripture. We see this in Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel was told, by the government nevertheless, that nobody was to pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. But what did Daniel do? Well, he goes right to his room like he always does, at the time where he always did, opens up the shades, and goes ahead and prays the way he always did. Didn't let it stop him in the slightest. The threat of death didn't even change the way that he prayed or when he prayed. You know, it was, it's fascinating to me because nobody today would look any differently upon him if he had just decided, okay, you know, I'm just going to keep the drapes closed. I'm just going to pray in my closet. Nobody would have blamed him for that. He still was praying. He was still worshiping. I don't think people would remember him the way that he's remembered today if that's what he did. Now, rather, rather, what do we see? This was a non-issue for Daniel. He didn't even seem to have to think about it. There was nothing the government was going to do that would even alter the way he worshipped God. The frequency, the location, the time, the way, his posture, none of that was going to change. He had decided in his heart that there's nothing outside of me and my relationship with God that's going to change the way I worship. And God honored Daniel and kept him safe. Saved him from that lion's den that soon followed. You all know that story. And as we, you know, I can't help but to think as I, we consider that fact that that's one of the things that, co- that COVID really helped our church critically think through in a way that we hadn't before. Are we going to let the government determine when, where, or how, or how many we can all worship together? I think that's outside of their jurisdiction. Looking at the Bible, that's what I see. So the next time something crazy happens and... Somebody tells us to close our doors, unless we're in absolute agreement with it, like we all were at the beginning of the pandemic, let's be honest. Unless we're in agreement, we know our answer in advance. No thanks. We're not going to allow other people to determine how we are going to worship. But moving on from that, Jesus concludes this morning's narrative with an example of how God provides for you when you honor him with your choices. Peter just happens at Jesus' advice to go fishing and just happens to catch a fish that just happens to have a shekel in it that just so happens to be enough to pay that tax. Let that sink in for a second. Let me tell you guys, when you acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways, you just might find yourself having these just-so-happened experiences yourself. I've heard story after story of 
incidents where missionaries would go out and they, were, they raised enough funds to do what they were called to do, but they didn't quite save enough for the trip home. And they're literally on the drive home and they hit a toll on the freeway that they forgot about. It's like, oh God, we don't have enough for even this. What are we going to do? Lord, help us work it out somehow. And they get to the toll and the toll booth operator says to them, you wouldn't believe this? The person in front of you paid your toll. Just so happened, huh? I could share story after story of things like that happening where you just trust the Lord and God shows that he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of the faith that we place in him. I mean, when, when we reopened the church as an act of faith in 2020, not a single person got sick. Not, not one individual case through this church of a single person getting sick. We trusted God when we kept the food pantry open during all of that, and the Lord has certainly blessed that ministry and just ballooned its influence in a time where everyone else was shrinking back. They pushed forward. God blessed them for it. And you know, needless to say, you know the church even today is facing some pretty big decisions. We got some big things to think about. But if we choose to honor the Lord and seek how to honor him in his house, I can't help but to think God is going to bless the process in ways that only he can, in ways beyond even my imagination, because that's the size of the God that I serve. Now, of course, I'm not saying God is just automatically going to bless you physically, financially, emotionally, because you have great faith and everything's going to go wonderfully for you. Things are hard sometimes. And the preachers that proclaim that message have a real hard time reconciling their theology with the book of Job. <laughs> yeah, tell him everything's going to be well for you. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. <laughs> After what happened in the book of Job, forget that. But there is a biblical principle here. And, we don't all, and God doesn't always reconcile his accounts the same week. You know, a lot, of, a lot of missionaries and a lot of people taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and the, as the gospel is going forward in a lot of closed-off countries like, like, like China or North Korea, Iran, people are losing their lives for the gospel, perhaps even today. But they're going to get their reward on the other side. They're going to get their reward. It's going to be a lot bigger than anything you can receive on this side, I can tell you. But there is a biblical principle at work here. Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. When David in his old age was meditating on this very thought in Psalm 37, he said, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And then passage we meditated on when we were back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God knows what you need, and he's able to give it to you. But we have to seek him first. As I'm reading off these verses, I'm seeing a pattern start to emerge. Are you guys... So look, when you choose to honor God and not compromise on your convictions, 
and take the higher road, at, perhaps even at some expense to yourself, as it did with Peter and Jesus in this passage, don't be surprised if you witness things just so happening. If you witness his amazing guidance and provision in the process. Thanks be to God.